from Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. In the new Cambridge Companion to Plutarch, co-editors Francis Tishner and Alexei Zadorozhny note that the writings of Plutarch of Chaeronea offer a rich and often vividly nuanced picture of Greek and Roman history and reveal a good deal about the intellectual culture of Roman Greece in Plutarch's own lifetime. But that was a long time ago, and it's not all you'll learn about if you read Plutarch's biographies of noble Greeks and Romans, which is known as the Parallel Lives, or his letters of advice called the Moralia. Because Plutarch had a way of writing that was insightful, accessible, and as it turns out, very transmissible across thousands of years of history. Tishner has been studying Plutarch for decades, and she says that the way she reads his work keeps changing too, as she changes and the world around her changes as well. Francis Tishner is a distinguished professor of history and classics at Utah State University and the co-editor of nine books in print, many of them about Plutarch. Francis Tishner, welcome. I'm glad to be here, Matthew. You've been studying Plutarch for a long time, and you, you, actually, you actually write this in your in the introduction to this new book that you know it's almost hard to talk about new things with Plutarch, and yet you keep going back and you keep going back. And I'm just wondering, like, what is it? What is it about this person and this person's writings that draws you back again and again? Well, I'd say the simplest way to answer that is increasing age. Just like many of us watched uh, various kinds of movies, I'm thinking of things like Les Miserables, as a much younger person, or Anna Karenina, I had a very different reaction as an older person in terms of how I perceived what was going on. Plutarch writes a great deal about interactions among people, nations, uh, races, all kinds of things. And that kind of conversation means has never not meant lots, but it means even more now than in the past, I think. It's it's so cool how the writings of these classic philosophers are still relevant, but Plutarch in particular, right? Can you talk a little bit about, about what you see as particularly relevant in his work today? Sure. And there's a, I think there are a number of factors. One of the reasons we even have Plutarch's work is he was assiduously recopied by monks during the medieval period. And that is because they saw his outlook as very Christian, despite the fact that he's he is not a Christian himself. And so that meant, that's a thread through 2,000 years that a huge section of people on the planet continue to respond to advice like, don't go to bed angry with your wife. That comes from advice to bride and groom. You, you actually listed a bunch of the things that Plutarch gave advice for. This guy was like the dear Abbey of his time. But then again, like... As you write, he's extraordinarily approachable, and so he becomes sort of an advice columnist for all time, yeah? You're absolutely right. The um, advice to bride and groom was composed as a wedding gift for the young couple, which I find interesting, again, that even in the past, these kind of customs uh, were popular. I think it the things that keep drawing us Plutarchans back are his observations not just about war, peace, etc., but the way he approaches his 
study of history through the lens of people. It's from Plutarch that we get most of the really fun information about Alexander, like the whole story of his horse, Bucephalus. And so some of that is kind of fun fact territory. Other parts of it are meant to inspire people to emulate the ancients in terms of displaying honor, support, and friendship. Friendship is a huge theme for Plutarch. Well, and Plutarch, you said that like he, he examines history through these individual lives. This person was an incredibly prolific biographer and then also this incredibly prolific philosopher. And that, mm-hmm. that's a little bit different than, than what we got out of that time from his contemporaries and, and the people who we tend to think about from that time, right? Yeah, but to him, these would have been the same, this would have been approaching the same target from different directions. The reason he writes the parallel lives, he says, is to give people examples to emulate. So instead of just telling them, be brave, you say, be like Horatio at the bridge, you know, be willing to withstand the onslaught of these enemies, even certain you were going to die. So the Moralia then, with titles like how to avoid debt, how to tell a flatterer from a friend, that's also approaching the same target in terms of how should we live, and that's Plato. When you read the Moralia now, there's got to be stuff that really strikes a chord. And then, you know, 2,000 years have passed and, you know, gender roles have evolved and a whole lot of other things. There's got to be also stuff that you go, oh, dear goodness me. It's it's interesting to me, partly because, although I'm not an American historian, the Founding Fathers were fascinated particularly by the Spartan lives, and I think we should be glad that they kind of gave that up as they formed our own constitution. And so here, they relied heavily on Plutarch's biographies for martial leaders, peacetime leaders, statesmen, and they wanted examples because all these guys are lawyers. In this companion, you want your readers to sort of think of themselves as being, um, I think you put it as a journey, it sort of struck me as kind of a a dinner party, right, with Plutarch and and the people who, the the authors of of the chapters in this book. Um, And and you've sort of played it out in that way, sort of like at first we're going to talk a little bit about where we're from, what our families are like, and what are our professions. And then, you know, we'll discuss literature and entertainment. And then I just feel this process of the night going on and things getting deeper. And eventually, and I love, I love this line, finally late at night, or perhaps in symposium, when the servants are not listening, we might quietly talk about what it is like to live under Roman rule. Tell me about that. It is a very dark passage for Plutarch, who is typically, even when admonishing, pretty sunny. But in this case, we must remember that Greece has been occupied by the Romans for quite a while by then. And Plutarch is a high-ranking official in his Greek country had a lot of dealings with the Romans in terms of either being in Rome itself as a kind of ambassador. These things aren't completely clear. But in the last few years, I had the opportunity to spend a sabbatical term in Crete. And there, 
I learned a great deal about the Cretan experience in World War II. And I learned this the first day riding around with a friend who, as we were traveling westward, said, that's the German cemetery. And it had never occurred to me, of course, there'd be a separate German cemetery than the Greek cemetery, but of course the Greeks are going to bury their dead. And I began to suddenly see a completely different world for Plutarch. In some of his other darker passages, he makes references to, you can sit there and congratulate yourself over the Battle of Marathon, which is absolutely sacred to Greeks even now as their great triumph in Western tradition. He said, you can do that all you want, like a little kid trying on dress-up clothes. You'll never forget those boots over your head. Like, wow. So of late, people are beginning to re-examine some of what he's saying with a little bit of a thicker lens to try to figure out what might be under that. Going off on the Roman Empire could get you exiled, executed, your family exiled, executed. I mean, it was no joke. And so, so you're starting to read Plutarch, where, whereas classically people read Plutarch for self-perfection and inspiration, and that's indeed how our founders read Plutarch, it seems. You're starting to read him as a resistance writer. I'm beginning to see that whether it's his intention or not, his experience in living under occupation is informing his language. Hmm. How does that strike you as you think about the state of our world today and and the way that, for instance, the people who are going to be reading this book will be reading Plutarch? I hope that it does two contradictory things. And this is how I start my history classes off with. Two things are true. One is that nothing has changed. People don't listen to this stuff. People loved their children. They often loved their partners. They had the same emotions we do. So don't reject the idea that you don't understand these people at all. But the second thing is that everything has changed. And so as you try to understand or scrutinize the past, you really are looking for a kind of guide. And Plutarch is the kind of literary guide that people feel comfortable exploring things with. They don't think he is going to just shock them for the sole purpose of doing so. And they know that he's going to try to give them good advice, but he's also going to sugarcoat it using techniques from drama, you know, comedy, tragedy, etc. And so I think he's a trustworthy person. Hmm. Well, and as as a teacher, as a teacher of of and forgive me here, many decades now, <laughs> um, um, has has the way that you thought about your your profession uh, in the classroom shifted and changed over the years because of how you think and what you've learned from this person who lived two thousand years ago. I think so. Uh, but it mainly has to do with uh, how we talk about meeting students where they are. And so the general Plutarchan idea that education is guidance and such, if I've got younger students, I'll try to be that way. As they progress, though, we begin to examine the fact that that there is a difference between opinion and facts. Really a problem in the ancient world in terms of what students are used to now as fact, even with the ability to manipulate media and such. 
So I think that as I continue to read Plutarch, I'm aware that some messages are going to resonate with some younger students earlier and others later. And to target this, if I simply unload like one of my favorite passages is people trying to get Plutarch to quit dancing in the service of Apollo. This is easier dealt with in class in a middle or advanced level. So I no longer see Plutarch as is largely a collection of excellent anecdotes, fun facts about ancient people, or excellent advice. I see it as changing with the target audience, and I think that's another function of age, as I said to you at the very beginning, is realizing that Plutarch has a kind of target audience, but it is not segregated by age or social status or even gender. It is whoever is been sent to him as a student, or that is someone that he cares about, like the advice to bride and groom, and he becomes, as a priest of Apollo, and a tremendous teacher all the time, since that, that idea of religion was more like that. So that's what I think, Matthew, that the older I get, I realize that things I used to think were arguably stupid or definitely wrong. And as I get older, I realize you go through stages, and that's the only way you really learn not to be stupid and sometimes wrong, is to go ahead and do it and find out how not to do it. I prefer that to avoiding it, to be honest. Let's let's say we're going to send some people to be students of Plutarch. Where do you suggest that they start? If people want to know more about Plutarch's writings, companions are the place to go. Ours forthcoming is more general than some that have already appeared in terms of, for instance, the reception of Plutarch and how ages after him used him and liked him. Uh, so that's a good place to start. Other than that, the easiest, the easiest and most effective thing is to go to one of the big classical dictionaries, like the Oxford Classical Dictionary, and look at the Plutarch article. And then at that point, you can think, oh my gosh, this guy talks about everything. Okay, I am a vocal musician, so I'm going to see what he has to say about uh, performance at symposium. Or I am a food nutritionist. Oh my gosh, these people talk about food nonstop. I'm a military historian, and I'm confused about the Battle of Granicus during Alexander's March East. And so then part of the point of the companion is to show them where they go next. And that's why we have additional reading and massive indices. So if you're a non-Plutarchan and you're interested in, I'm serious, I just finished doing this, turtles, you know where to go. <laughs> okay, so in our day, anybody who opined so prolifically on so many different things would be called a blowhard. Um, possibly. I'm trying to think because I don't think he is, so I'm looking for a way to counter that argument. <laughs> I, would, I would think these days, Matthew, considering how many people have platforms of different kinds, that somebody publishing that much, that might, that might seem like overkill. I can understand that. But he's, he's avoided that, right? I mean, like, I, I, it's not my perception that there's a whole lot of critique, um, formal or otherwise, of Plutarch as a, as a blowhard. 
Well, there there is a kind of stock figure in Greek literature, and if you know your Iliad, this is the old Nestor figure. He is the oldest, the wisest. He's not really in combat anymore, but he is the uber advisor. And whenever he starts his speech in the in the Iliad, it's going to go on for a long time, and it's total grandfather at the table taking over. So there is a kind of role of an of an old educated figure that everybody defers to, but also a little bit of recognition that you're going to do a lot of listening. What do you, when you're introducing a student to Plutarch, um, do you start them with the Moralia? Do you start them with parallel lives? It completely depends on the person, Matthew. It depends on how we got here and what they want to do. And so if somebody says to me, for instance, I just want to read one of these biographies, I'd probably stick them on Julius Caesar, something that they already know a little bit about. But when you read the biographies, holy cow, Plutarch doesn't hold back. And so you hear a whole lot about uh, Caesar's younger life and kind of salad days and such. So that would depend if somebody was a philosopher and they were interested in questions, which is a big part of Moralia. And some of these are actually things like which came first, the chicken or the egg? And others are very technical philosophical questions uh, in the Platonic tradition, the unmoved mover, the the theory of forms, things like that. So if I have a philosophy student, I'll head them straight there. If I have somebody that simply wants to know why they should read more, I'll stick them on an inflammatory biography like Romulus. Romulus and Theseus, who are theoretically mythological figures, boy, we get some interesting mythology starting there. Okay, I, this this does actually uh, relate to a question I had for you, though, because um, because Plutarch was such a great biographer. Um, but Pericles, for instance, lived hundreds and died hundreds of years before Plutarch comes along. Where does a biographer in ancient Greece get information about the people? of whom he is writing. In Plutarch's case, he had access to many, many sources that did not survive uh, past four or 500 of the common era. And so he, he includes all kinds of literature that no longer exists, but he quotes from it. And so we're able then to reconstruct missing plays or speeches or et cetera, using those works. In the opening of several of the biographies, he makes it clear that he is not competing with historians like Herodotus or Thucydides. He's writing a biography, and he says specifically he finds more of interest in a joke or an anecdote than in the big flashing battles and the set pieces and such. And so he gets a little defensive about it, even saying, that again, that his goal is different. He's not competing with the historians. You have a fondness for this person, for this philosopher and writer. Do you find yourself arguing with him as well? Um, sometimes. I have a, by now, decades argue, long argument going with a colleague uh, to the extent is, what is the extent to which Antony and Cleopatra truly loved one another? 
and to what extent was a lot of this political expediency and then and getting stuck. We've been carrying on about that for years. I naturally argue with, with some of Plutarch's advice, which has to do with not setting off the Romans and getting yourself killed. I have a little bit of different feeling about that. Plutarchan scholars argue with one another like crazy. But a lot of that gets uh, specific, like what year was this eclipse, things like that. Yeah, but what about what about with Plutarch himself? I mean, like there there are things that Plutarch wrote that you now you roll your eyes at and you go, oh, you you old old dude. Well, in the same advice to bride and groom, where we have the lovely idea not to go to bed angry, we also have the suggestion that women should be pleased if their husbands pursue extracurricular sex with professionals <laughs> because it's sparing them. So I'll just let that kind of be there. I met Plutarch very, very early in my graduate career. I was fascinated with the late 5th century BCE in Athens, but I was daunted by working in the hardcore historians like Thucydides. Working in Plutarch let me also work in all the literature of the day, the comedies, the tragedies, inscriptions, philosophy, everything. It opened all these different doors. And I found him a very congenial companion. I'm so glad you liked the traveling metaphor. That was that was um, me more than Alexei. Do you think that he is underappreciated? And and here I don't mean in history. I mean obviously, right? Like he his work has had such an effect on so many aspects of our modern government and the way that we think about things. Even, even as you said earlier, he was not a Christian, but had great influence on the early Christians um, and the Christians through the Middle Ages. Um, but today, he's not the first philosopher that comes up in most people's conversations. Do you think that he's been forgotten in ways you know, more than he should have, at least, I should say? Well, the main reason I hope not is I remind you of the Shakespeare plays that draw entirely from Plutarch's lives. And the scholarship on that alone would keep Plutarch in the forefront of academic thinking. And so we have that little benefit. And of course, the platonic aspect means that philosophers have never stopped. But what I hear you suggesting is that this is pretty hardcore academic scholarship, and it starts becoming niche. And I'm afraid we all know how that turns out in the end. So one of the questions is, how do we keep expanding that? And one of those ways is teaching Plutarch in sneaking him into Greek or Roman history, working with students, trying to suggest projects that they can work with, that I can then connect them with people all over the world that specialize in and can help them form networks, things like that. And so, yes, to a certain extent, but I'll give you an example. Maybe 30 years ago, as you pointed out, Matthew, at lunch with our visiting speaker, Tony Hillerman, whom I idolized, and asked what he was reading, and it was Plutarch's Lives, and I almost fell out of my chair. And then, of course, I had to be stopped from 
from explaining to Tony anything anybody ever wanted to know about <laughs> lies. But you'd be so you'd be surprised. It's not something that is definitely in the mainstream and talked about. You talked about about continuing to find new ways to make Plutarch accessible um, and available and relevant. That's what you've tried to do in this companion, the Cambridge companion to Plutarch. That's what the Cambridge companions are designed to do, at least the ones for antiquity. And you know, there are hundreds, if not thousands of them. And that is that they've got to be solid. I mean, this this is not a place for speculation unless it is contained within a context that is going to have a resolution with what is the current thinking, that sort of thing. It's meant to be solid, but it's meant to be accessible to an educated audience. And that was a challenge and a half in terms of Uh, editing, and I'll just leave it at that. But that is our goal, that somebody, for whatever reason, is drawn to the companion, maybe because they're working in Shakespeare, maybe they're working in Coriolanus, for instance, one of Plutarch's biographies, and they're looking in the companion, and they realize there's so much more. That's our hope. That's Frances Tishner. She is the co-editor of the Cambridge Companion to Plutarch, which becomes available in January. Fran, thank you so much. Thank you, Matthew. It's been a pleasure. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 1030 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our program is supported by a generous grant from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. Mm